For the rest of you, turn in your Bibles to uh, the small book of Jonah this morning. Jonah, we're just going to look at the first three verses in chapter one in Jonah. If you're not familiar with the, your Bible, uh, you're going to uh, go somewhere in the middle and you'll run into some large books like uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If you see one of those books somewhere in the middle of your Bible, then start making your way to the, to the right. Uh, keep going forward in your Bible, and if you hit Obadiah, then you're close, and then there's Jonah. But if you hit Micah, then you've gone too far. Go back one, and, and, and you'll, find, you'll find Jonah. Jonah is a minor prophet, not because he is unimportant, but because he is small. There's, a, there's only four chapters in this, in this short book, and we're going to study these together over the course of the next five weeks. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I don't see any in the back table back there, but there certainly are some uh, underneath the offering box in the back. Feel free to pick one of those up uh, during our time so that you can see these words in front of you this morning. These are the inspired words of God given to us, uh, given to us before us this morning. Uh, these words come to us uh, as if uh, Jesus himself, with the same authority as if Jesus himself were here speaking them to us this morning. It's been a bit of a, a, a bit of a while since we've been together in the Old Testament. Uh, so I'm excited for the next five weeks. I'm excited to, to process together Jonah with you. This is a well-known story. We'll get to that in a second. Let me read these three verses here right out of the gate. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I just read three verses, and for the sake of time, I'm only going to read three, but I would encourage you to go read the rest of this book this morning uh, after we're together this morning, sometime this afternoon. It won't take you more than 10 minutes to read through the rest of it, to see the whole uh, narrative unfold, because this is designed as a short story. The The author of Jonah writes this as a short story uh, over the course of a few days, uh, and we are supposed to see together uh, exactly all of that happens to Jonah in, in, this, in this short book. The, the story of Jonah is a well-known story, though. I'm, there's probably no one in this room who hasn't heard of Jonah. In fact, it, it, whether you grew up in church or, or not, uh, you probably have heard of Jonah because Jonah is the guy who gets swallowed by the, the, big, the big fish. Uh, and that all of that happens right at the end of chapter one, and then he's in the belly of the fish in chapter two. But this book isn't about a big fish. Uh, this book is about a big God. This book isn't about Jonah getting swallowed and then spit out. Rather, it's about God and who God is and what God does. And so I want you to introduce you to the theme of Jonah right away. And this is going to require you to go down the page just a little bit. Uh, oftentimes in Hebrew literature, this is a, uh, again, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Oftentimes in Hebrew literature, the theme of the book will appear in the center of the book. And that's exactly what happens here in the book of Jonah. Look at verse 9 in chapter 2. Go to verse 9 in chapter 2 and look there with me. Right at the end of, this is the end of Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, 
he says one simple phrase that's going to really operate as the theme for us as we progress through this book. And the phrase, Jonah with an exclamation point at the end, says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that might seem like a normal thing to say. Uh, uh, It might seem like a normal thing to say, salvation belongs to the Lord. But if you think about the language that, that, that Jonah is using by saying this, it's in inter- maybe even a little bit curious language. Because he uses the word belongs as a, in a possession. Salvation is a possession belonging to God. What Jonah is saying here, and again, we'll see this all throughout our study of the book of Jonah, is that salvation. God has a monopoly on salvation. Salvation is God's. It is a possession. It's possessive. God owns salvation. And therefore, if something belongs to you, you can do with it what you would like. You don't have to answer to other people to determine why or why your actions are the way they are. For example, if you own a home, you can go this afternoon and paint your bathroom lime green. If you want to do that, you can. You own the home, your bathroom, you, and you don't have to justify that to anyone else in, in the room, maybe your spouse. But, um, but they're also on, probably on the mortgage, so that all works and makes sense. You can paint the bathroom whatever color you like if you own the home. Inversely, if you do not own the home and you show up at someone else's house this afternoon with a can of lime green paint and start painting their bathroom lime green, there's probably going to be a problem. You're, you're probably going to throw down maybe a little bit if you won't stop, at least. It, it, we could give a hundred examples here. Something that belongs to you, you can do with that thing what you would like. If you go get in your car, you own a car, you drive to South Dakota this afternoon, no big deal. You can use that. That's your right as a car owner. And so Jonah observes from the belly of the fish that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah can't tell, this is going to become important as we spend time in these three verses this morning. Jonah can't tell God to do what what to do with what is rightfully God's. Jonah can't tell God what to do with what is rightfully God's. And neither can we. And so as we move through this short book, we'll explore this theme more. And it's not something that won't come up this morning. It'll continue to come up throughout our time in Jonah. Because it's a lesson that we need to learn. It's a lesson that Jonah needed to learn. Because no matter how much we think we have things within our control or want things within our control, it's God who saves and God alone. So, I wanted to introduce you again to the theme of this book right out of the gate, because again, we're going to uh, spend significant time thinking about the implications of this simple phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. So, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. We are introduced to Jonah. This book begins by in, uh, in introducing us to its main character. Uh, the name of the book is Jonah, and we're introduced to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And with no hesitation, 
we find Jonah doing the exact opposite thing that God tells him to do. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah heads to Tarshish. Now, we don't really know much about Tarshish. Uh, There's not a whole lot of data on it, especially an exact location. But one thing we do know is that it's not in the same direction as Nineveh. And if we're and if we're and we're actually gathering or figuring out uh, where it is, the likelihood is that you couldn't go in a more completely opposite direction than Jonah was going than by going to Tarshish when God told him to go to Nineveh. So our task this morning, what we want to do is ask this question: Why does Jonah decide not to go to Nineveh when God tells him to go to Nineveh? Why does Jonah not go to Nineveh when God tells him to go to Nineveh? There are two answers to that question. First, two answers to the question, why does Jonah decide not to go to Nineveh when God tells him to go to Nineveh? The first answer to that question is Jonah knows his times. Second answer to that question is that Jonah knows his God. Jonah knows his times, and Jonah knows his God. And the answers to these questions is what's going to guide our time together in these three verses. So, first thing, first idea, Jonah knows his times. Now, we actually know very little about Jonah. He gets mentioned one other time in Scripture. In verse 1, we're told that he's the son of Amittai. Who's that? I don't know. But we, uh, we get a brief mention of Jonah in 2 Kings 14. In 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27, uh, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which, he made, made, which made, Israel, or made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. So we get a little bit of context here, a little bit of understanding of what what is happening during Jonah's time. Jonah is from Gath-hefer, not really a place of any consequence. There's not a whole lot of data on that. That means very little to us. But we're told that Jonah was a prophet uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of the evil king Jeroboam II. Now, this matters. This, this context matters for us because if you read the book of First and Second Kings, you'll find that pretty much right away in First Kings uh, after Solomon, the, 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 the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are divided. So from that passage I just read, uh, the, uh, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. Uh, 
the Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Now, Samaria is the northern part. So that's the northern kingdom. And so Jeroboam, the son of Joash, reigns in the northern kingdom for 41 years. The northern kingdom, oftentimes just referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom, often just called Judah. Uh, the region is Samaria. And so sometimes you'll get that language in there as well. So when we get to 2 Kings 14, this is what we should take away is that this is not a good time in Israel's history. It's not a good time. Evil king after evil king, um, bad stuff going on, lots of idol worship. We're told in this passage that I just read that Jeroboam II is an evil king. Even though he does some good things, it would seem, like he expands the borders of Israel, but ultimately he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. This is important historical context when we're asking ourselves the question, why is God sending Jonah to Nineveh? Why is God sending Jonah to Nineveh? Because here's, here's, here's the rub. No other prophet in the history of Israel had ever been sent to a nation other than Israel. Now, Nineveh is not in Israel. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is a major threat to Israel. You'll see at the end of that passage in 2 Kings I just read, um, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel for very bitter, for there were none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. Israel's all alone, isolated, burned its bridges. Assyria's on the doorstep, threatening, threatening Israel. And now, God is calling Jonah to go to the capital city of the largest threat of the enemy nation of Assyria. And we just read, again, in that 2 Kings passage, but in 2 Kings 15, we read from 14, in 15, Assyria actually makes an initial invasion into Israel, into the northern kingdom. And within just a handful of years, not, a, not more than a couple generations will go by before Assyria devastates the northern kingdom altogether, destroys it entirely. So again, the question stands, what, why is God sending Jonah to Nineveh? The answer is this. Israel has provoked God to jealousy. Israel has provoked God to jealousy. This is the current state of things, and these are Jonah's times, and Jonah knows his own time. There's an evil king after evil king after evil king after evil king in Israel. There's idol worship upon idol worship upon idol worship in Israel. The Israelites are ignoring God's law over and over and over again. And so Jonah knows that when the word of the Lord comes to him and tells him to go to Nineveh and to call out against it, he knows that now God is turning his gaze away from Israel. And Jonah knew his Bible. 
you read your children, the children's Bible, and you, you see this picture of Jonah. He's kind of a blubbering idiot who just kind of does the thing and goes, stumbles the wrong direction and gets swallowed up by a big fish. This is not at all the picture of Jonah. Jonah is a very smart guy who knows his Bible really, really well. And he knows exactly what Moses said in the Song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. And this is an important thing because the Song of Moses gets quoted over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament because of the direction that Israel would go. So up on the screen, you're only going to see one verse, but I'm going to actually read a handful of verses from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 21. Again, this is Moses at the end of his life, at the end of Deuteronomy. He says, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to uh, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never, uh, never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord sought and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And you see that at the, the end there, Deuteronomy 32, 21. This is exactly what's happening. This is, and Jonah sees it. He sees it clearly. The Israel has made God jealous with their idol worship. They've provoked him to anger over generation upon generation of idol worship. And so they make God jealous. And so how does God respond? He says through his servant Moses, way back in Deuteronomy 32, that he will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. He will make them jealous with those who are no people. God made Israel a people, and the Assyrians are no people. That, that's the language that's going on here. He is turning his gaze away from Israel. Moses says that Israel resists God, and when they do, God will turn away from them. Israel will provoke God to jealousy, and so God, in turn, will provoke Israel to jealousy by turning his attention to another nation. And that's exactly what's happening and exactly what Jonah sees in front of him. He knows it. And so what does he do? In his own jealousy, God is turning away from this people, my people. He turns and he goes the other way. He is so provoked to jealousy that he will. He wants God's blessing for his people. 
He knows the idol worship they've engaged in. He knows the evil king after evil king. He knows that they've resisted God and not repented of their sin for a generation upon generation. But he wishes it were not so, that it was not him who had to bring this message of condemnation. Because by going to Assyria, by going to Nineveh, he knew that God was turning his gaze away from his people Israel. Jonah didn't flee in the direction of Tarshish because he was being selfish. He fled the opposite direction because he loved his nation, because he loved his people. Now, it's misguided ultimately, right? But he loves his people, and he knows that the task that God has assigned him spells bad news for Israel. So why does Jonah go to Nineveh when God tells him to, why doesn't he go to Nineveh when God tells him to go to Nineveh? Because he knows exactly the sins of Israel and they have made God jealous and he knows exactly how God will respond according to Moses. He will respond by turning his gaze to a different place so that, so that he would provoke his people to jealousy. Jonah knows his times. He's a smart guy. He sees the writing on the wall. He knows it. He knows this is coming. But additionally, in addition to knowing his times, to seeing all that's unfolding before him, Jonah knows his God. Jonah knows exactly the kind of God that he serves. And again, he is much smarter than we give him credit for. Jonah knows his Bible, and he figured out really quickly in these first three verses why God wants him to go to Nineveh. And by verse 3 in chapter 1, Jonah knows exactly what God's up to, and this is why Jonah flees to Tarshish, away from Nineveh. What does Jonah realize? I said it a moment ago, but this is the first time that God has sent a prophet that we have recorded in scripture to a people other than the nation of Israel. And God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, the nation that is looking at Israel and thinking that looks pretty ripe for the conquering. And so if God is going to be merciful towards Assyria, that would spell disaster for Israel. Jonah knows who his God is, and he knows that when he is being sent to Assyria, that is God showing Assyria mercy. Now, the message he's bringing is a message of repentance. We see that in the text. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Calling out against it is a call to repentance. Repent of your evil ways. Their evil has come up before God, and now, uh, and now he says, sending Jonah to call out against it. But for the very reason that God would assign Jonah this task, demonstrates to us that God is showing Assyria mercy. Jonah does not like that one bit. Because why wouldn't God, if God had no intention of showing Nineveh, Assyria, mercy, why wouldn't God just send an angel and wipe 
about their army or something like that. He'd done that in the past. But this is not what's God's, what God's doing. When God calls a people to repent, that's mercy. Because he gives them an opportunity in his patience to actually turn from their wickedness. To actually turn back to him. They're getting a chance to turn. Something that Israel so far has been the sole beneficiary of. With a few small individual exceptions. But now, God is giving a whole group of people, a whole nation, and one of his people's enemies, a chance to turn. Here's where chapter 2 verse 9 comes into play. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah did not like this idea. God will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Earlier in Moses' life, in Exodus 33, uh, God says this very thing to Moses. Moses asks to see God's glory, and God is telling him about his character. God is telling him Moses about God's character. And when he says that he'll pass him, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God here has chosen in Jonah to show mercy to the Ninevites. In sending them a prophet, he is giving them a chance to turn from their evil ways. It is an undeserved kindness to a wicked people in Nineveh. It's an undeserved kindness that they get the chance to repent. That's exactly what God does. This is exactly what God intends to do. Jonah knows the God he serves. (laughs) This This is fuel for him turning and going the other way because he knows that God is patient. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is compassionate than slow to anger. He knows that God is a jealous God. He knows all of these things to be true. And Jonah knows that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that God will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Even the great city of Nineveh. And Jonah, even though he flees, cannot, though, get away from the task that God assigned him. And we'll explore this more. But in verse 3, he tells us that as Jonah is, look at the very end, of, well, the, the second half of verse 3. So he paid the fare and went down into, into it, this is the ship, to go with them to Tarshish, where? Not away from, not away from Nineveh, but away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is first and foremost not trying to get away from Nineveh. He's first and foremost trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. Now, God is not absent from Joppa, where he gets on the ship, or he's not absent from the sea, and he's not absent from Tarshish. Jonah could not escape the task because he cannot escape God. And maybe Jonah thought that God would pick someone else if he went the other way. That he would assign this task to someone else. Can you imagine being the guy who gets the, like, hey, 
This is spelling disaster for your group of people. You're the guy who's going to make that all a reality. That seems like a pretty hard pill to swallow. So maybe Jonah thought that he'd pick someone else, or maybe he was foolish enough to think that God would just change his mind about showing Nineveh mercy. But here's where Jonah errs. This is the error of Jonah. Thinking that he could be free from the requirement of God's word was Jonah's error. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, hear this. Thinking that we can be free from the requirement of God's word is our error. Thinking Jonah could be free from the requirement of God's word was Jonah's error. It is a futile endeavor. And there's a little clue in these verses that indicates this to us. It's kind of all sprinkled throughout chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2. But look at verse 3. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. And then look at verse 5. We didn't read it, but look at verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. Now go to chapter 1, verse 2. Or chapter 2, verse 2, excuse me. I called, this is the beginning of his prayer, after he's swallowed by the big fish. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Look at how Jonah's always going down. He went down to Joppa. He went down to uh, down in the ship. And now he finds himself right up against death itself. In the belly of Sheol, I cried. He doesn't say from the belly of a fish, I cried. He says, from the belly of Sheol, I cried. Jonah's descent, seeking to get away from the requirement of the, Lord, the word of the Lord in his life, t- carries him right up against death itself. Jonah knows that he can't get away from God. God is everywhere. He knows this to be true. But as a prophet, he is called to stand before the Lord and follow the Lord's instructions. And Jonah knows that the jig is up for Israel. He he doesn't want Israel to bite the dust. So freeing from the presence of the Lord is a downward spiral, a downward descent of running from the task he had assigned to Jonah. And resisting his role as a prophet leads to these dire circumstances that he finds himself in. And we'll get there in the next few weeks. So what does Jonah know to be true about God? Jonah knows all of this right away. He needs to learn the full application of it, and he'll do that throughout the the book. But Jonah knows right out of the gate that salvation belongs to the Lord, and he knows that God is compassionate and merciful, and that God plans to be compassionate and merciful towards the people of Nineveh. And he knows that resisting God, he knows this, that resisting God will carry him to a dark place. Jonah's no dummy. He knows full well what he's doing when he heads in the direction of Tarshish, exactly what the word of the Lord is calling him to and what it means for Israel. And he thinks, Maybe, just maybe, this will be better for me and for my people if, than if I actually went to Nineveh. 
These are the first three verses here and what's contained within these, these verses. But there are several implications that we should draw as a conclusion this morning. Several implications. I'm just going to give you three this morning from these first three verses. These are relatively solemn considering Jonah's situation. The first is this. When a people resist God, God turns his attention elsewhere. When a people resists God, God turns his attention elsewhere. Israel, again, for generations had been ignoring God's law, had been worshiping idols, and provoking God to anger and provoking God to jealousy. Jonah knew his times, and he knew that God was about to turn his attention away from Israel and toward Assyria, even for a moment. Jonah himself is provoked to jealousy. He does not want God to be compassionate and merciful to Israel's enemies, and he wants them dead. Friends, it strikes me, it strikes me that we rarely, if ever, are jealous for God's attention. It strikes me that we rarely, if ever, are jealous for God's attention. Many of you are indifferent entirely to the spiritual state of things around us in our society. We live in a culture that is increasingly becoming a spiritual wasteland. And the church stands as guilty of tolerating and even embracing, in some instances, the very things that have cultivated the spiritual desert. Our country has rejected truth, we've rejected God, we've embraced pluralism, we've embraced secularism, we've embraced humanism, we can't tell men from women and women from men, we've killed millions of babies, and we think that self-expression is the highest form of achievement. But before you start pumping your fist, some of you are guilty of thinking that the solution is that for our society is that the crazy people on the coasts would just look a little bit more like North Dakotans in all our politically conservative pseudo-glory. But a golden calf is a golden calf no matter what angle you look at it. The solution for our humanism, pluralism, secularism, and godlessness isn't political conservatism, but repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We must plead with God to turn his attention to us and repent of our indifference to God's word and our indifference to the mission to take the gospel to our community. We live in so much indifference. We've been told and fed the lie so many times that we are at the center of the universe. Friends, you are not at the center of the universe. And we must full well as a people, as those who profess to be Christians, repent of our sin and turn to God and plead with him to put his attention back on us. Our good morals and the logic of traditional values and political conservatism aren't enough. The road to hell may be wide and well-tended roses may border the shoulders and there may be very few potholes, if any. But it still leads to hell. And it's only Jesus that can provide the course correct for something far narrower, but that leads to life. 
friends, do not be indifferent to the spiritual state of our society. This is the call to the church to stand up for truth, to preach the gospel, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to our friends, family members, and coworkers who are living in this spiritual desert and who have literally no idea that there's something better than themselves. When a people resists God, God turns his attention elsewhere. We should be provoked to jealousy. God, give us your attention. Second takeaway this morning is this. God is patient and merciful. Do not delay in your own repentance. If that's you, if you're just completely indifferent to the spiritual state of things around you and your own spiritual state, repent. But God is merciful and he's patient. I love this in Solomon, uh, what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 8.11. He says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of men is fully set to do evil. Just God in his character is patient with sinners. We're told in the book of Romans that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not finger wagging and and beating you up over the head. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And his kindness is put on display in his patience towards us. When we stumble and fall over and over and over and over again, God is patient with us. He bears with us in our sin. And he bore with us even to the point of sending Jesus to die in our place. He was patient with Israel leading up to Jonah's time. Generation after generation, ignoring God's law. Generation after generation, wanting to look at like the nations. Generation after generation, worshiping idols. God sent the prophets to Israel to call them back over and over and over and over again. Patient, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger. But God's patience, when we get to Jonah, God's patience had been presumed upon for generations. And it was taken advantage of. And because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the hearts of the Israelites was set to do evil. They saw that the punishment was not carried out quickly, and so they used that as license to continue sinning against God. Some some of you in this room have been engaged in the same sins for decades, over and over and over again. And you're tempted to think that it's no big deal because lightning hasn't come out of heaven and hit you and knocked you dead. But that's not the reason. That's God's patience. He's patiently bearing with you, hearing the call to come back to him. He loves you so much that he would not forsake you. He would continue to show you mercy, that you would hear calls to repentance and faith in your life. Continually, by those who are in this room, from the pulpit, in in your day-to-day life with your spouse or your family, your kids. The work of the Holy Spirit operating on you. Because God is patient with you, take time to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. 
But for those who continue to resist God, resist his kindness and mercy and patience, those ones aren't punished in this life. In fact, it might seem that the ones who have loved their sin and embrace it fully actually are the ones who are rich and seem at peace and seem as though they are, have little to no hardship. Because for those who love their sin and resist the call of repentance in their lives, what God does is he turns his attention away from them entirely. God uses hardship and difficulty in our life to refine us, to make us more like him, to discipline us as children. But I don't discipline your children and you don't discipline mine. And God doesn't discipline those who are not his children. The judgment of God is coming for all of those who love their sin. But in the meantime, God has simply given them over. This is what Romans 1 says. God gives those who love their sin and who resist his patience and mercy and forbearance towards them. He gives them over to the lust of their heart and to impurity, to dishonorable passions and to a debased mind, to do what ought not be done. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. So the call to us when we see this passage in the state of Israel and what what God is doing and calling Jonah to do is to not delay in our own repentance. Because it is far better to be disciplined by God than it is to be given up by him. God is patient and merciful. Do not delay in your own repentance. Final thought this morning, we who have been given God's word are to respond in submission and obedience. We who have been given God's word are to respond in submission and obedience. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now we see that right away in the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah and it comes to us. We, each one of us has, if you have this book open on you, if you have it open on your phone in an app, this is the word of the Lord. And if you're here and you're in Christ, then you're responsible before God to bear witness to what's contained here in the scriptures. In response, we should take this as a negative example. In response to the word of the Lord, Jonah flees and goes the opposite direction. He fled, at the end of verse 3, the presence of the Lord. That phrase the presence of the Lord is easier to understand than we oftentimes make it. God's presence isn't some mystical uh, air that we have to enter into. God's presence is operating in your life within his will. But even those words sometimes get hijacked to mean something less than concrete. God's will for your life, friends, God's will for your life is not some journey of self-discovery. It's not some uh, that you need to go on. It's not some weird thing that you have to figure out. It's far simpler than that. God's will for your life, operating within the presence of God, is submitting to God's word and obeying God's word. When the author writes that Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord, what he's saying is that he's not leaving some sacred space in which God was contained but that he did not submit to God's word for his life, and he did not obey God's word. Remember, thinking that he could be free from the requirement of God's word was 
Jonah's error. Thinking that he could be in some way free from the requirement of God's word was Jonah's error. And again, the opening lines are very important. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah and a prophet is marked by the word of the Lord coming to them. And this is how they were vetted. Did the word of the Lord come to him? And the answer is yes, but the the line doesn't say, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah and so Jonah took the next five to seven years to determine if he should do what God says. Because Jonah knew that submission and obedience was required and not in a delayed sense, uh, delayed submission and obedience is no kind of submission and obedience at all. But because he knew that God's word required immediate submission and obedience, Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord, running from the submission and obedience to the word of the Lord that came to him is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And so the question is simple. Are you fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Are you personally on the run from the presence of the Lord? Do you see the submission and obedience that the call on your life from this document, this word before you this morning? Do you see that clearly but are going the other direction? That's the case for many of us, many times in our life. We know what we ought to do, and yet we do not do it, and to us that is sin. But if that's you this morning, if you're thinking to yourself, here it is, like, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm absolutely on the run. I know what the simple obedience as a husband or a father or as a mother or as a wife or as a grandparent or as a coworker or as an employer. I know what God's simple word to me is and how I ought to conduct myself with character. And I know how I ought to live according to God's word, but I'm running the opposite way. If that's you this morning, then know this. The answer isn't to resolve to do better. Guess what? That'll last all of like three minutes. The answer is to turn to Jesus. Again, the call of repentance is always to turn away from sin, but you can't turn away from sin to nothing. You must turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, even in the face of death, with the weight of the sin on the world, of the world laid upon him, crushing him, never stepped outside of the presence of God. Never stepped out of a position where he was in full submission and full obedience to God's word. He was always perfectly within God's will. That's good news for you because you can't and won't and even now. But God, in his kindness, sent Jesus into the world to live the life that you couldn't live, to die the death for your sin that you deserved so that you might spend eternity with him. Jesus' perfect submission to the Father and perfect obedience are now given to you as a gift. They're given to you. We say they're imputed to you. They're credited to your account. No longer are you trying to conjure these things on your own, but they are given to you as a gift. 
Jesus Christ never failed to submit and obey God's word. And he was always perfectly within God's will. And friends, that is the foundation for your own submission and your own obedience to God's word. Trying to do it by yourself will never result in in those things. But by turning from your sin and trusting Jesus Christ, you can have all of it. So look to Jesus. Trust to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Come to Jesus. And true submission and obedience to God's word can only come by being joined to him by faith. In him you are free from your sin and free to submit and free to obey God's word and free to live in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that even though we, as sinful people, cannot discern our errors, that your word lays us bare and exposes us so that we can. God, we thank you for the great mercy that that is. God, when we resist you, when we resist your word, God, would through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength to look to Christ? Would you cause us to look to Christ so that that strength might be given to us? So that we might live within the presence of the Lord in full submission and full obedience to your word. God, as we continue to study Jonah, would you stir our hearts? God, would you cause us to uh, regularly plead with you? Would you turn your attention to us, even those who have resisted you for years and years? Would you cause us now to say with great assurance that salvation belongs to the Lord? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.